Need a break from the horrifying reality of real life? Well, do we have a sexy deal for you. Go to adamandeve.com and use our special code HORROR for 50% off almost any item and free shipping. That's H-O-R-R-O-R at checkout for 50% off and free shipping. Order now and get ready to... That's that. Hi, everyone. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another exciting episode of I'm Horrified. I'm Horrified. And We're boy, back. Are we? We're, we, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of upsetting stuff this week. Yeah. And every week. Yeah. I've started listening to a podcast that, like, tries to explain to me what's happening with Trump's impeachment. And every time I listen, I'm just like, I'm more confused. That's the whole world to me right yeah. now. It's just I try to educate myself and I feel more confused. They say, you know, knowledge is power. I disagree. I disagree. I would argue ignorance is power. (laughs) That sounds like a new t-shirt if I've ever heard it. Yes. (laughs) Ignorance is comforting. Ignorance is like a soft blanket. That's so true. They say Um, ignorance is bliss and boy is it. And boy is it. Oh man, you guys. But in in that spirit, we are going to fight against our our most, you know, mammalian urges to just curl up next to something warm and we're going to we're gonna confront some shit today yeah we really are we're Um, getting into it today i'm gonna talk about ruby ridge which if you don't know about it fuck sorry it's it's like a crock pot of nonsense (laughs) and horror it's a lot and I'm going to talk about, speaking of crockpots, I'm going to talk about, no, that's gross. <laughs> I, for, at first thing I was like, the the vagina, it's like a crockpot. No. One time I heard that the vagina is like self-cleaning like an oven, and I was like, yes. that makes sense. And then bun in the oven. Oh, I didn't even think of that. I'm, Although, not, ta- I'm not talking about any of that. <laughs> yeah, and your baby doesn't live in your vagina. It's up in your uterus if you're pregnant. Also, we're not doctors, so if we said that, it's not our fault. Fair. Um, we both went to acting school. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about the hymen. Love it. Hymen. And barely knew him. <laughs> so so you're going to talk now after that. Um, really no, I can't. I can't segue from that joke. It was too good. It was yeah. How are you going to top it? We'll find a way. I'm excited to tear into the hymen. Ao, <laughs> that was a better joke. That was better. Yeah. Um, but not until you bring us through this truly upsetting tale. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Um, that we once watched a documentary about together. Yes, we did. I totally forgot that because I was like, "Did you see the documentary?" And then you were like, "Yeah, we." I, I think we saw it, it together. together. <laughs> Uh, but I was doing the same thing. I was like, I know I watched this documentary. Was Allie there? Because that's a problem I have a lot because we've spent so much time together. A lot of that time spent watching documentaries. Yeah. That it's yeah. hard to be like, did this happen alone? Was I with Allie? Was it on the podcast? Was it in real life? Also, usually we watch a, a documentary together and then like missionaries out onto the sea. So true. Like we go watch it. Like you showed me um, my favorite documentary, which is uh, The Queen of Versailles. Oh, so good. Best document. It's the best documentary I've ever seen. It's very good. I just watched a documentary by Lauren Greenfield, who I just watched her new documentary. It was amazing. But after you showed me that, I showed it to like my mom. <laughs> I showed it to Chris. Like I recommended it to a bunch it's of people. So good. It's so good. It was the same with like Going Clear too. Like one yes. of us watched Glowing Clear first. You did. And then it was like we, then me. we watched it together. Then we watched it with our friends. Then we went separately and we showed it to other people. Usually like, you watch it alone. Because <laughs> you're you have your your finger on the trigger of all pop culture things in a way that I really it's it's a wonderful quality of a friend Thank that you. I have in you. The other thing about me that is important to this though is that I will rewatch something I like 
a thousand times. And a lot of people yeah. are not like that. And it's a very good quality, again, in a friend. But, but you to, will... to force someone to watch something, it's helpful to be willing to watch <laughs> yes. it with them. You watch it with me, and then yeah. we both bring it to Becky. Yes. And then we bring other people in the mix <laughs> individually. Yeah. If you've seen any of those documentaries, it was probably because we started it. I but, think so. But you showed me this documentary about Ruby It's Rich. like pay it forward, but a child doesn't die at the end. Oh, but a child dies in this one. Let's mm-hmm. get to it. That's sad. <laughs> All right, y'all. We're laughing at it already. Are We're you interested in a story that includes religious fundamentalism, yes. racism, police brutality, what? and child death? Um, I'm not interested either. Can we talk about the hymen yet? <laughs> Um, but reporting on the worst shit is my curse, and therefore listening to the worst shit is yours. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to talk about the story of Ruby Ridge. And like Allie and I were saying, there is a truly lit documentary about it. It's an American experience documentary. So we saw it on Netflix, but I think it also exists on PBS if that's an easier thing for you to access. Highly recommend it. I'm going to reference their reporting a lot in this. But just so you know, that exists. Uh, in the meantime, listen to me summarize it in a low budget format. Yep. Um, so... To truly understand Ruby Ridge, if you guys don't know what this is, you must be there like, what is Ruby Ridge? To even begin to tell this story. Stop. I'm sorry. I don't want to stop you before you began. But Ruby Ridge is like an excellent, excellent analogy for the hymen. Wow. Like it's a Ruby Ridge. It's usually (laughs) in a crescent shape. Yeah. Wow. That just hit me. Oh my God. Like a ton of bricks. I'm so sorry. How rude of me to interrupt (laughs) you as you were crescendoing up to a story. No, that was was important. Ruby Ridge... Hymen. That's what they call it. We do work on this podcast. Okay, I'm going to be quiet for the next 20 minutes. So so losing your virginity is like the U.S. Marshals storming Ruby Ridge. Yes, exactly. But All it's right. not really, it's, it's not. not as, it's, it's more complicated than you think. Like much Ruby Ridge. Much like this story. Wow. Everyone's turned the podcast off. <laughs> They're like, Just tell us anything. <laughs> so, to understand Ruby Ridge. Uh, to even begin to tell this bizarre and sad story, we need to understand the Weaver family, the, the, the stars of the story, the protagonists, I guess, the people who the story's about. The ensemble, yes. if you will. So Randy Weaver um, is a traditional man. Uh, he had dropped out of high school to join the army and ultimately became a Green Beret. He was then honorably discharged at 20 and returned to his home state of Iowa, where he met his future bride, Victoria Jordison. Um, And Victoria had grown up also in Iowa on a farm. She had been raised for with all the homemaking skills that a future wife needs. She's deeply religious and she kind of becomes the spiritual leader of their little family. So we've got two people with very traditional values in love with each other, married in Iowa and it's okay. the 80s. Sure. That's where we are. Imagining a lot of like floral print couches. Yeah, a lot of that. Sure. Absolutely. So um, Randy and Vicky feel that the world is not heading in a good direction. It's the early 80s. The economy is not in good shape. And they are looking for a guiding force Prince in their lives. Prince is really popular. Yeah. They're worried. <laughs> and they don't get it. <laughs> uh, so they find this guiding force they're looking for. Um, but turns out not in a super healthy for them place. Uh, this next part is from a PBS article written about Ruby Ridge by Corey Brosnahan. The Weavers were seeking to understand a world that seemed out of control. It led them to evangelical preachers on television, Jerry Falwell and the PTL Club, and to books like Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, which explained how you could interpret current events using the Old Testament. Okay. To Randy and Vicki Weaver, Lindsay's book really did seem to explain it all. 
Gog, the evil empire discussed in Ezekiel, was actually the Soviet Union. The Ten Horns of the Beast from Revelation were the ten nations of the common market of Europe. And the global increase in famine, war, and earthquakes were sure signs of the apocalypse to come. Randy and Vicki Weaver were trying to connect the dots, and the dots told them that the world was about to end. So at this point, the Weavers have had three children, Sarah, who was born in 1976, Samuel or Sammy, born in 1978, and Rachel, born in 1982. Vicky is 100% sure that the apocalypse is coming and that they have to protect their family. Uh, and to do that, they plan to move away from civilization entirely. Um, so they sell their suburban home in Iowa and they purchase 20 acres of land on Ruby Ridge in Idaho in 1983. The Weaver kids would be homeschooled by Vicky and the family would be safe from the end of the world, which to them sounds perfect. The Weavers spent time with the Amish to learn how to live without electricity, which I didn't even know. And that's crazy. I didn't know that either. Yeah. And then... Well, I guess uh, that's where you go if yeah. you're curious. And then they spend most of their time together doing chores, playing board games, studying the Bible, and just being a little family unit. And they do that for years up on Ruby Ridge. Now, the Weaver's closest neighbors on Ruby Ridge was a 20-acre compound on Hayden Lake, which was owned by a man named Richard Butler. And Butler had purchased this property for the members of his group to be able to come together and share their like-minded ideas. Oh, nice. And this group was the Aryan Nation. That's bad. So that's not great. <laughs> um, here's another segment from that PBS article. Why are they always trying to buy land? Just, they just want land. Uh, they just want their own little corner ew. of the sky. Um, so Butler and his immediate followers were members of a religious group called Christian Identity, which held that white Christians were the real, true Jews, the children of God. Wait, what? <laughs> and that the people who called themselves Jews were imposters and seeds of the devil, and the people of color were mud people who's, uh, who, de who denigrate everyone else, uh, and, you know, other garbage like that. That's gross. Which is fucking crazy. And every July... Butler hosted the Aryan World Congress, which drew hundreds of fellow white supremacists uh, and white separatists and general racists. Uh, some of them are Ku Klux Klan. Some of them are like outlaw bikers. Some of them believe in God. Some of them don't. Some of them wear camouflage. Most of them hate the government. But it's the idea of it is just for them to come together and break bread. And it's kind of like a racist networking event. Okay. And someone else, else at these gatherings was, of course, Randy Weaver. No, stay in your little house. I know. So Randy's daughter, Sarah, um, who has since, who's in the documentary and has made some statements about like her life on Ruby Ridge, has claimed uh, that Randy was not a white supremacist or an actual member of any of these groups, but that he was a person who loved debate and was open to all ideas and was really social. So he went to these gatherings kind of in this very isolated area because they were the gatherings that were around and his beliefs about kind of like the Christians being like the best people in some ways aligned with this group, even though it didn't totally align with their like super racist ideas. I mean, you're not awesome if you're like going and hanging out at Aryan barbecues. Yes, I would. I would agree. I would strongly agree with that. Sarah would not. Sarah wouldn't. But she's biased. But she is biased. Now, there are wiretaps of Randy Weaver from that time directly saying he is not interested in starting a race war, that he sees things from a religious point of view. 
Um, and it does seem like he was not a member of any of these groups. He was not a member of the Aryan nation. He was not a member of the Ku Klux okay. Klan, even if he... I mean, not okay, but chatted right, with <laughs> moving on. <laughs> now, a moment ago, you may have heard me say there are wiretaps. Oh, wait, yeah, that I totally... Poof. Right over my head. Yes, when a bunch of white supremacists move to a small town in Idaho, the FBI is going to be interested. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so um, it seems like they were initially investigating Randy, hoping he could become an informant for them. Uh, because the Aryan Nation trusted him, and Randy had been a Green Beret and had even run for sheriff. So he clearly kind of believed in the rule of law. Mm. However, in process of surveilling the Hayden Lake community, they discovered that Randy Weaver was caught up in some of their illegal activities. Namely, um, he was a person who, like, bought and sold a lot of guns. And Sarah said that he kind of used it as, like, a way to hold money. Like, if he had extra cash, he would buy a gun. And then when he needed cash, he would sell a gun. That was, like, his banking system, which... Very similar to mine. Really, really similar. For you, it's 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 beautiful porcelain figurines. Yeah, I buy everything from the sales section of anthropology, and then I just <laughs> kind of offload it when I need cash. <laughs> but... Randy Weaver did sell two sawed-off shotguns to one of the informants that was in the Hayden Lake community. Can't do that. So, in 1990, a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearm, or ATF agent, attempted to use the sawed-off shotgun charge as leverage to get Randy to act as an informant for this investigation against the Aryan Nations. They basically go to him, they're like, we know you illegally sold these two sawed-off shotguns, work with us and we won't do anything about it. But Randy says that he will not become a snitch, and therefore the ATF does file those gun charges in 1990, um, also claiming at the same time that Randy was a bank robber with criminal convictions, which none of that was true. Randy had no criminal record, and he was not a suspect in any kind of bank robbery. Okay. So why did they say that? Unclear. <laughs> just for fun. Just for flavor. So a federal grand jury indicts him in December for making and possessing, but not for selling illegal weapons. The ATF concludes it is too dangerous for the arresting agents to arrest Weaver at his property. Foreshadowing is a dramatic device used to warn of what is to come in the future. So, in January of 1991, ATF agents pose as broken-down motorists, and Randy Weaver and his wife Vicky pull over to assist them. And when they do, the ATF agents reveal that they are federal agents. They push Randy and Vicky into the snow and arrest them. Whoa. Which uh, rubbed Randy the wrong way <laughs> that they had to sneak up on him and his wife. Um, so Randy Weaver is finally told of the charges against him. Um, and he has to end up giving his house as like collateral against his bail. And he's told that if he loses his trial his house will be taken now that is actually not true so it's not really clear if like the person who told randy this at the police precinct like just was wrong or lying or was lying trying to kind of get him to do something for them but just imagine that you are the weaver family who are isolationists who believe the world is ending and therefore have moved to this secluded home in the middle of the mountains in idaho and now the government is getting into your business and threatening to take your home just because you won't snitch on your admittedly white separatist friends. For them, it's like a huge affront to what they think and feel and believe. Yeah, putting myself in their shoes, I can see that. Yes. And also, the Weavers had recently had their um, fourth child, baby Elisheba, 
in addition to their other three kids, now 16, 14, and 10. I think it's Elishaba. Is it Elishaba? Yeah, I just remember from the uh, documentary. Nice, that's so helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I, the whole time I was reading it, I kept thinking it was I like remember, Elizabeth. I remember Sarah saying Elishaba. Elishaba, now I know. All right. So, so basically they have this whole family, they love their life and their home, and the government's threatening to come in and take it. So they're like, no. So the Weavers decide Randy is not going to show up for his trial, and instead they will just stay up on isolated Ruby Ridge and kind of see what happens. And okay. For, and for a while, nothing happens, because the government's just kind of like, well, we don't want to go up there after him. So for a while, it kind of seems like it worked. <laughs> I mean, running away works sometimes. It really does. It really does. Just staying out of the way. The Marshal Service is called in to bring Randy in. And they do, like, a threat assessment of the family. And their threat assessment basically says, Randy and Vicky carry weapons at all times. They believe the world is ending. They hate the government, especially since Randy's arrest. And they'd likely be willing to lay down their lives for their beliefs. So, um, a scary profile to read if you're the agent who needs to bring them in and you know they have four kids. Yeah. And various agencies that are now in this, the marshals, ATF, like, local police are in a real quandary over how to handle the situation. Some are like, we should just storm the house. Some are like, we should kind of sneak in and kind of figure it out. Some are like, we should drop the charges and then Weaver will come out and then we can just refile the charges. Like they really can't decide what to do. The marshals end up surveilling the Weavers for months and the Weavers know they are being surveilled. They keep finding cameras around. Yeesh. So they're getting more and more paranoid because they know the government is watching them, because the government is watching them. That's fair. But also they believe the government is going to, like, bring about the apocalypse. It's, it's a bad situation that's just, like, growing and growing on themselves. And they ultimately end up not leaving Ruby Ridge for 18 months. They just don't leave their eat? land. So they have friends coming and visiting them, and the friends are kind of bringing supplies. But also the friends were all saying, like, hey, like, you got, you should just turn yourself in, Randy. Like, what the fuck at this point? You need to just do what yeah. you need to do. And they feel like they can't trust anyone from the outside because any of them could be working as an informant for the police or the FBI or any of them. Mm. So ultimately, all they trust is each other and then their family friend, Kevin Harris, who has been staying with them throughout the ordeal. The Marshal Service finally decides that a ruse will be the safest way to lure out Randy Weaver without putting his family in danger. Which just makes me think of Batman, which cracks me up. Like, the idea that they were like, we will trick him. Yes. And then he will give up the info. So what they planned to do, basically, was to plant two agents in, like, the next lot. And mind you, like, the Weaver slot is, like, 20 acres, so still a distance away. But they just plan to send out like a male and female agent as if they are a young couple building a cabin. And they know that Randy is a really social guy. And they think that he'll probably go over and introduce himself to them. And once they kind of get his trust that way, they can bring him in separate from his family, not having to bring them into it at all. That's the plan. They're like, we're geniuses, the marshals forever. That's what we're going to do. Um, trigger warning uh, for this next segment. I'm going to talk a lot about gun violence. So if that's triggering to you, maybe just skip ahead. The day before they're planning to do that, they're like, let's go into the mountains one more time just to surveil the area, make sure we're all really familiar with it, and then tomorrow we'll start on this plan. So the Marshall's team is up in the mountains one last time, and on the way down, they hear a car. So they all kind of hide in the bushes, and of course, that car is the Weaver's car. 
Ooh. To which, like, one of the marshals was later like, in other times during the surveillance, I had been so much closer to the house. And of course, it was this day that, like, the weavers were right next to us the day before we were trying to start this new thing. So the car stops, and in the car is Randy, Sammy, their family friend Kevin, and their dog, Stryker. So they stop the car, and Stryker starts barking at something in the bushes, pulling away from the family and causing the family to chase after him. Stryker keeps barking. The weavers are coming closer and closer, and Stryker is, of course, barking at the federal agents who are trying to hide until the weavers pass them. And so the the weaver's getting closer and closer to where the agents are hiding, and this is the moment where the agent's story and the weaver's story diverge pretty radically. So according to all the marshals that are there, and they tell a couple versions of that, this story as time goes on, they identified themselves. They said, you know, we're the marshal service. They call out to surrender. Kevin Harris opens fire on them. So he fires the first shot. He kills Marshal Billy Deegan, who is Ooh, there. Oh my God. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. The marshals then return fire only after Kevin Harris has opened fire. They kill the dog in this process of firing. Oh. Um, and they think maybe they've injured someone else, but they don't really know. According to the Weavers, what happened is that they were following their dog into the woods when they are confronted with men dressed in fatigues and with dark paint on their faces looking like a strike team. The marshals had shot and killed the dog already trying to make it stop barking, which prompts Sammy, who is 14 years old, to become very angry and to open fire. Why would a 14-year-old have a gun? It's the Weavers. That's their style. Okay. Apparently, I read one article that said that he started teaching Sammy how to use a gun at seven months. To which I was like, how? So you just put a, a gun in a crib? <laughs> With a baby, I guess. I... Don't put your mouth on that, honey. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so. I fucking hate guns in general. I know. But so Sammy just saw his dog get shot. So he opens fire. And the marshals fire back as Sammy turns to run away, killing the boy. Oh. According to the family, Kevin Harris had dipped, like, dove for cover and fired back on the marshals, and that's the point where he kills Billy Deegan. But either way... So no way to know. So you really can't know. Either way, no matter what, U.S. Marshal Billy Deegan and 14-year-old Sammy Weaver are now dead. And either way, this horrible thing has just inflamed what the two groups already thought about each other. Like, the federal agents are now like, these people are dangerous, they'll fire on anybody. And the family is like, these people are dangerous, they just killed our kid. They killed our son. Yeah, they that's kid. like, I would be, I would never think of anything rationally again. I yeah. would be like, the government's going to kill all of us if they killed my kid. Absolutely. Yeah. But he's also a crazy white supremacist. I think he's got to be kind of a white supremacist if he's hanging out with white it's supremacists. It's hard, yeah. I have to say. Yeah. That doesn't mean that his son deserved to, to be killed die. at all. No. But, um... It's, yeah, it's, it's bad news. So, um, they, they bring, the Weaver family brings Sammy's body back up to the hot house. And Sarah Weaver later said that, like, she kept expecting, like, there to be, like, news on a megaphone that was like, hey, we're so sorry about that. Holy shit. Like, what the fuck? Let's talk. And, like, they never heard from any of the marshals. No one ever approached them that day when Sammy was dead. And the marshals say they had no idea that he had died. That, like, he, they thought maybe they injured someone. But they had no idea. They had mm. just killed that kid. Which their their actions kind of make it seem like they didn't know. So, That's true. A nightmare. The marshals radio in that there is an ongoing firefight with white separatists. 
Which is not exactly what is happening. <laughs> what is happening is it's the Marshalls versus one family. There had been fire exchange. A, a Marshall had died, which is horrible. And then, like, they both separated. Right? So. Yeah, that's not the situation. It's not quite what's happening. But either way, the FBI's hostage rescue team is called in. And the FBI treats this case like it is against a military organization instead of like it is against a grieving family. What the fuck, FBI? But of course, they they didn't really know that Sammy was dead. Yeah, well, if you say it's like an angry standoff between a group of white separatists, I would think it's all like a bunch of grown men yes, with guns. Exactly. Um, even though there is some truth there, fire is exchanged. Yes. He has ties to white separatism. So I, it's... That's not correct. Yeah. But I I can see where they got that, but mm-hmm. that leads to a totally different outcome then. Exactly. Exactly. So FBI negotiators are called in, um, and it looks like a military encampment at the base of this mountain. Like, there's now three federal agencies working this case. They've been given permission to fire on site with no warning, like you would in a war. Oh, yikes. Instead of, like, usually the policy is you have to call out, like, U.S. Marshals, put down the gun, and then you can fire. Now they've decided that doesn't have to be a rule today. Oh my god. I know. It's fucking crazy. Um, The negotiators think this is overkill. (laughs) They're like, hi, what the fuck? Well, they're negotiators. But the policy leads to this next very, very bad, horrendous thing. The day after the initial shootout, Randy and Kevin left the main cabin to go to a small shack where they were, unknown to the FBI, keeping Sammy's body. Um, Sarah says it was trying to, like, say goodbye to him, which is horrible. Um, they were armed and a helicopter that was surveilling them passed overhead and the helicopter thought it looked like they were going to shoot at them. Um, so there is a sniper on his perch, which is like on the adjacent ridge. And he fired two shots at the men. Uh, he fires the first. He doesn't think he hits anybody. Weaver and Harris then run back into the house and the sniper fires a second shot. And this time he thinks maybe he hit Kevin Harris, but he wasn't sure. Um, his first shot actually had made contact with Kevin Harris, so he's now injured. Um, Vicky had heard the shot and opened the cabin door, urging Randy and Kevin to get back inside. And as Randy rushed in, that's when the sniper fired his second shot, which hit Vicky in the head, killing her instantly while she is holding her 10-month-old baby. I forgot that. Yeah, it's a nightmare. So she dies in front of her... her Two daughters who are 10 and 16, her baby who she is holding, her husband, and her family friend who is also grievously injured. It's an absolute nightmare. And again, the FBI has no idea that it's just happened. Well, you can't just shoot people and then not follow up. It doesn't work that way. I know. I agree with you. Um, so yeah, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. The FBI continues to try to reach out to the Weaver family to negotiate. Unfortunately, again, they have no idea Vicky is dead, and they've been told that she is the brains of the family. So they keep addressing kind of their outreach to her. They keep being like, Vicky, we know you want to keep your family safe. Like, Vicky, come out and talk to us, and, you know, we won't take your husband. Everything will be okay. And the family inside is just getting more and more furious because Vicky is dead. They've just killed her. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine. I'd be going crazy. Yeah. And her... This is something else that's horrible. Her body ends up staying there in the cabin for eight days. Ah! Just like under the kitchen table, they had to put it. Because they weren't willing to go outside because their mom had just died. Yeah. Whoa. 
So um, the nego negotiators don't realize they are doing a bad job, but they are doing a bad job. Um, at this point, the FBI has figured out that Sammy is dead. So they kind of make an announcement that unfortunately Samuel Weaver is dead and they realize at least like, oh, that's maybe why they're so mad at us because we killed their 14-year-old son. Ugh. Now into our story enters a man named Bo Gritz. Uh, Sounds like a fake hillbilly man. <laughs> Bo Gritz by name, Bo Gritz by nature. He is a Green Beret uh, and a really well-respected military figure. And here is his introduction from the PBS story, which I think just sums him up. As Bo Gritz remembered it, he was having lunch in Phoenix, Arizona, when the FBI called to ask if he knew what was going on in Ruby Ridge. They told him that Weaver, Randy, the dad, was a Special Forces soldier and that he knew of Gritz and respected him. And they'd like for Gritz to send Weaver a message asking him to surrender that they'd record over the telephone. Gritz told them he doubted it would work, but they asked him to do it anyway. Once they got the machine keyed up, Gritz said, Weaver, this is Bo Gritz. Stay where you are. Keep your family safe. I'll be there first thing smoking tomorrow morning. Well, said the FBI afterwards, that was not what we were looking for. <laughs> so Bo had made up his mind and he decides to travel to Idaho and resolve this situation himself. He does not um, work for the government. <laughs> He, um, maybe he's just like, I want to try to help this situation. Yes, he is, which is admirable, but wild, but admirable. <laughs> so ultimately, the FBI does not want him in on this, but they're like, you know what? Fine. Like, it seems At like, this point? Let's just go for it. And he is the first who person who finally gets Randy to trust him. And finally, Randy is able to tell Bo that Vicky is dead. And Bo comes down the mountain and he's like, you guys really screwed up. And the FBI is like, what? And they're like, yeah, your sniper killed Vicky Weaver while she was holding her baby. Uh, and they're like, oh, holy shit. We didn't know. They had yeah. no idea. So it's Bo that facilitates getting Kevin Harris out of the house for medical treatment. He had been shot and he was looking really bad. And he is even allowed inside to remove the body of Vicky, who again had been sitting under the table for eight days. And finally, the FBI tells Bo that he needs to get the family out of the house or else they are going in. So again from PBS, Gritz approached the cabin. He was scared that once Re Weaver refused to come out, um, the hostage response team would open fire and they'd have the tank come down and just shove the thing off. Uh, once he was on the stairs, he heard Weaver say, Bo, is that you? He said it was. Then Weaver told him that he and the girls had prayed all night. So this is Weaver and his 10-year-old and his 16-year-old. And they had voted that they were not going to come out. The feds were going to have to kill them just like they did to Sammy and Vicky. This is the feds like worst nightmare that this is what's happening. And this yeah, has always been what they were afraid of. They were afraid that they were going to be like, all right, kill us then. And, yeah. you know, it wasn't that way. And yeah. now it is. And now it is. He told Gritz he meant no disrespect, but that he might as well go home because they had already made their decision. Gritz objected. Weaver, damn you, he would remember saying. Don't you tell me that we're not going to continue when I have carried your bride out of this cabin, when we got out Kevin Harris, who is still alive. Gritz was right up at the door. Don't you tell me you're going to quit now, he said. This is like a movie, the way that Bo Gritz retells it. I mean, he seems like a character, but I'm glad he's here. Yeah, in this case, he was obviously what we needed, because eventually Randy Weaver finally sees reason. He descends the mountain with his three daughters 11 days after the incident began. Whew. It is fucking crazy this whole story the first yeah. time i heard about it i was like how do we not all learn about this every day yeah so uh this incident is horrifying on a few levels uh the radical reading of the bible that the weavers believed which led them to leave the world behind 
uh, and kind of sort of agree with the Aryan nation, it's a full nightmare. Uh, the misinformation that different government agencies kept spreading to each other, that's a full nightmare. Uh, the death of a 14-year-old boy and a woman holding her baby on her own property, an absolute nightmare. Yeah, it's all <laughs> It's horrible. all horrible. Uh, but let's look at this with today's lens. And that is the modern militia movement. So a lot of people point to this incident and also um, the uh, the Waco, oh God, what's it called? The Branch Davidians. Like yeah. that whole incident. Waco. Yeah. Yeah. As the thing that really kind of kicked off this modern militia movement. Because it is really easy for white supremacists and ultra white wing groups to point at these two and say... The government's trying to kill us. The government is trying to kill you. They're trying to take your guns and take your land and take your family from you. Yeah, and because they, that's what they did. In that, did. <laughs> in, the, in that case, that is what they were trying to do. And the only way that you can fight them is if you have enough firepower to. Like, the only reason Randy Weaver was able to defend his house was because he and his whole family had guns. And they were able to take out a marshal. And so these stories, and specifically Ruby Ridge, has become like a really um, radicalizing story for a lot of people. Like a rallying point. Yeah, absolutely. That's horrible. And you see these militia groups growing and growing and more ever in like cities. (laughs) Like they used Mm. to only live in like the far country. More and more these groups are moving closer and closer to the cities. Nobody gives a shit about your land. (gasps) And like, like... These groups, like, the guy who did the Oklahoma City bombing in the 90s, he said he did it, like, in memory of the Weavers. And, like, the... the fuck? And the, like, the Charlottesville protests in 2017, a lot of the people were part of this militia movement who believed in protecting their land. I didn't know and, about this, really. Yeah. It's, it's still a really growing movie, and it is very intersected with, like... A lot of white separatism and a lot of, like, mm, these... I can imagine. Yeah, because it's a lot of, like, we want to keep our people safe. Yep. So, like, in theory, when you just say to someone, don't you want to keep your family safe? They're like, well, yeah, of course I do. But not like, not like how you mean it. Yeah. Not like like safe. Not safe like that. And even Bo Gritz, the hero of our story, he is a prolific conspiracy theorist and the populist party's presidential candidate. And he was briefly on a ticket with ex-Klansman David Duke. Oh, come on. So, like, for a second, I was like, all right, Bo Gritz, like, you know. Kind of your own you, mavericky type. You but want I, him to be a folksy I want hero. him to be like a Ron Swanson kind of guy. And no. no. You can't, again, like, you can't just be friends with somebody in the clan. You're just not allowed. You just can't do it. You just can't do it. It doesn't matter if he's so nice in every other way. He still doesn't matter to is me. a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, so the government's mishandling in this case just proves these groups right. And that's the big danger. Like, that is the danger of the government overstepping their bounds in ways like this, besides just the government being wrong and not being able to do that, it serves as a case for all these people to get radicalized. And that's like the lasting legacy of Ruby Ridge, which is so sad. So just like the saddest, craziest story that that really happened. It's really complicated too. And it's really complicated. You can't put Randy Weaver up on a pedestal. No. Because he endangered his children in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And seemed to have some real fucked up ideology. Mm-hmm. And you can't be like, oh, well, the government just did what they had to do. They did not have to use that type of force yeah. at all. They totally mishandled that, mm-hmm. you know, but and it's, it's just a very, very complicated and a deeply sad thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is the Ruby Ridge story. Sorry I had to tell it to you. Uh, let's talk about the hymen. I totally forgot about the hymen. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, you can't forget about the hymen. I won't. (laughs) 
Okay. So. Moving on. Moving on. All right. So the true blue horror honeys out there know that I've already covered virginity. And that was pretty recently. That was like episode 68. Yeah, that wasn't too long ago. And you, Sam, covered purity rings a I while sure back. Did. We love to talk about how virginity is not real. It's a construct. We, we're going to keep talking about it. Thank God. Um, but you're all like, what more could you possibly have to say on this topic? Haven't we covered it? Why are you so obsessed with genitals, Allie? You love talking about it. <laughs> To which I say, I'll never stop talking about genitals. No. As long as I live and breathe. You can pry my genitals <laughs> from my cold, <laughs> dead corpse. Um, you actually can because I might donate my body to science. So there you go. There you go. You can pry my genitals from my cold, You dead have corpse. my medical consent <laughs> yeah. to do that if somebody needs it. <laughs> <laughs> just like like kind of put, like putting up my vagina in a box and just sending it off like oh she's gotten some good use <laughs> enjoy her be free like a used car um okay if you're not used to us talking about <laughs> vaginas on this podcast by now i don't know go listen to cereal or something get with it um so yes i did cover virginity we did quickly cover the subject of hymens i actually had to go listen to the episode and be like how much did i talk about hymens do we have more to say how or did i cover it we talked about it a little bit um, in relation to, you know, virginity and dowry practices, but we didn't really get into the specifics of what a hymen actually is and why it is for some reason so enthreshed in sexual pop culture and society and why there are so many misconceptions surrounding it. And obviously it's been in the news. We'll get to that later. Get to that at the end. Um... But in the virginity episode, we discuss the history of virginity as a concept being prized as a means for ensuring lineage and land. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ruby Ridge! Oh, Um, God. uh, Protect your land! Uh, But now we're going to specifically discuss what a hymen is and its significance to those concepts of virginity that we discussed before. Mm -hmm. So you can pause this. Go back to episode 68. Mm -hmm. I think you talked about the Menendez brothers. Oh, my God. (laughs) So that's fun. Combining uh, horrible murder and virginity. Isn't that a fun combo? Because we're trying to murder the concept. Amen. All right. What is the hymen? Glad that nobody asked. (laughs) Uh, There are actually a lot of different types of hymens. And not even in the sense that, like, you know, like, labias come in all different shapes and sizes. Like, yes, that is true. But there are actually different classifications medically for hymens. And I didn't know about that. I didn't know that Um, either. So, yeah. But most vagina havers do have one. So let's... Break it down. Let's tear it down. Woo! Um, and all of this information that I'm about to give you comes from youngwomenshealth.org. Nice. So the hymen is a thin membrane that surrounds the opening to the vagina. So the vagina is actual, like, like the whole canal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, place where things go and things come out of rather than, like, your labia and your vulva. Yes. Um, we can do that. We, we can add a chart on Twitter if you like. I would love to do that. <laughs> um, and get deactivated. Um, the most common hymen in a vagina haver is shaped like a half moon. And this shape allows menstrual blood to flow out of the vagina. Mm-hmm. So it's not, like, closing off anything. Yes. So there's also an imperforate hymen. And that is a thin membrane that completely covers the opening of the vagina. So not that half moon, but Mm -hmm. it's completely covering the opening. So menstrual blood cannot flow out of the vagina. So this is um, something slightly abnormal medically. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it happens. So it's not abnormal meaning, oh my God, it's a terrible thing. It's just 
you know, it's that's not something, the norm. Yeah, it's not the norm as much. This usually causes the blood to back up in the vagina when you start menstruating, which can develop into some not so fun medical things. Um, but there is a treatment for that. And you can have a minor surgery to remove the extra tissue and create a normal sized opening so that menstrual blood can flow freely. So that's the hymen, the imperforate hymen. And then there's also the microperforate hymen, which mm. you can probably guess what that is. It's got a little perforation. That's right. Nice. <laughs> Just a little tiny one. So it's, um, you know, it almost, the, the thin membrane almost completely covers the opening to the vagina, but there's a small perforation. Um, menstrual blood is usually able to flow out. Um, and a young people with a microperforate hymen usually will not be able to insert tampons mm. into the vagina and may realize then, like when they try to use the tampon, that there's, you know, a problem or they're not able to use one. Mm -hmm. Or she might, this kind of freaked me out, like she might be able to get a tampon in, but when it fills with blood, you can't get it out, which is was always my nightmare. <laughs> As a tampon user, I was oh my like, goodness. what if it just stays in there? And my mom was like, there's a string. Also, it's fine. Stop being an <laughs> idiot. Um, and that treatment is also just a minor surgery to remove the extra tissue. No big deal. And then there is a septate hymen. So this is the last type. There's so many hymens. Um, I know. It's, it's like so fun. a smorgasbord. I won't describe it like that. <laughs> I will. It's a smorgasbord. So that is when, again, thin membrane covering the vagina. It has an extra band of tissue in the middle that causes there to be like two openings. Oh. It's kind of like a, I think of it as like a pillar in the middle of a room. Yeah. <laughs> Just kind of cutting it off in the middle. Um, and again, no problem. You usually have trouble getting tampons in and out, but you can just have a minor surgery. No big deal. So I did not know. So many kinds. Crazy. But it's good to know that, right? Because if I was a young girl... And I, like, tried to put a tampon in and there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. I would feel probably freaked out or yeah. scared. I would be too embarrassed to talk about it. But it's totally not a big deal. All of it is totally normal and can be treated. So there's no need for us to be in the dark on that. And the more people know, the more likely it is for everyone to just be like, oh, you have an imperfect hymen? No big deal. Yeah. No big deal, boo. Um, and if one of my kids has an imperfect hymen, I could just be like, no problem. We'll just take you to the doctor. Get rid of it. Or you could just use pads for a while. Because yeah. let's all admit, tampons can be scary. Yeah. They scared me. Yeah. I really had to, I really had to like commit when I did it. I was like, today's the day. Yeah. I remember, I think I was like in my friend's house and she was like talking me through it. Nice. <laughs> I was very scared of them at first. Then I just wanted to go in a pool. That was why I did it too. I was just like, I want to swim, damn it. It's summer. Every girl has had that pool party that made her use a tampon. Amen. And it's a beautiful beautiful rite of passage. We as vagina havers, all of us thank pools thank, for what yes. they've done. <laughs> for giving us the courage. Um, all right. So knowing all of that, we can bear this knowledge in mind as we move forward and think about what that means mm -hmm. for the information we're going to get in the, <laughs> in for the, a, for in the information that's about to come. So some vagina havers are born with holes or openings in this membrane and some are not. And because some are born with it, Obviously, it has absolutely nothing to do with sexual contact Not in that thing. case. So we're all just going to bear that in mind moving forward. There's absolutely some people who have tears perforations openings naturally and some who have no openings. It's totally just depends and it doesn't have anything to do with your size. You know, it's it just is the way that it is. It's okay. no big deal. So the hymen can do a bunch of things 
as vagina havers get older. If there is a small opening that can get larger over time, simply by growing or because of other activities, and these activities include but are not limited to riding a bike, using a tampon like we talked about, doing gymnastics, masturbating, or vaginal sexual contact of any kind. So fingers, toys, penetration, things like that. Um, but, you know, including but not limited to. Yes. <laughs> um, and these activities or just growth over time can stretch or tear the membrane um, and cause there to be some blood in the vaginal opening. So a good way to think about it is Alexandra Eisler, who is a health and sex educator, said in a piece for Teen Vogue. We love Teen Vogue. Amen. They have a great um, article on this. About, oh, like, nice. Myths about the hymen. That's great. <clears throat> she says to think of the hymen like tissue paper. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like something you're punching through. Mm-hmm. It's not something that like really rips open. It's just, it's very easy to rub or tear and just kind of like, it can kind of like disintegrate away or rub away mm-hmm. or rub open or tear open slightly. Like mm-hmm. it's... It's a lot more delicate than I think a lot of us think about when we think yeah. about our body parts, but it's just a membrane, so it's not going to be like our skin. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like breaking your skin. Um, so that's another thing to keep in mind mm-hmm. as we're moving forward, thinking about what does what is this hymen thing? So because it is possible for there to be tearing or stretching during sexual intercourse, it's totally like that could be the, the first thing, mm-hmm. you know, that happens. Um that basically became like an old wives' tale. It was an anecdotal rite of passage, an indicator of sexual contact because it happened when some people had vaginal sex for the first time. Mm-hmm. However, studies indicate that less than half of women bleed during their first penetrative sexual encounter. So it's not as common as we think. I think a lot of people grew up thinking that is what happens. Yeah, I certainly did. Yeah, me too. So less than half of vagina havers, Mm -hmm. that happens to them. I'm sorry if I say women. That's not, we all know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not we all know. Um, It's hard when you're pulling quotes from stuff. Yes. (laughs) And then like you read the quote and then you're like, oh. Yeah. Um, So when I'm referring to women, it usually is referring to a study done with people who are women. Yeah. Um, So other than that, you know, I'm referring to vagina havers, people with periods, vaginas, um, or people with vaginas, because not everyone with a vagina has period. Isn't medical anatomy so fun because it is so variant? Yeah, humans are wild, Yeah, it's crazy. It's a blast. And wonderful. So yeah, not everyone is going to bleed the first time they have penetrative sex. Also, there could be something else happening. You know, you could have ridden a bike, hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you rode a bike, you did, you know, whatever. And the other thing, this is just my two cents, well, non sequitur, but if the first thing you're tossing up there is a penis, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's not, I would not recommend that. I want all high school, middle school, whoever's sexually active out there, give me just three to six months of hand stuff first. Yeah. And then check back in with each other. Third, Do that as a favor to me. Third is a base for a reason. Yep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just play it all out and then then come back and think about it and have a chat about it. Absolutely. Three to six months. Just, just have fun. And you know that what? Way, it will be a blast for you. It'll be a blast for you. You won't get bored. And then you'll teach your partner how to communicate with you. Yes. And then you graduate a little bit. Yeah. That's what we're saying to all of our young and old listeners. We're taking it to everyone. I want everyone to do that, please. Yeah. <laughs> so any what's, over time, that anecdotal story of you have to bleed when you have, you know, sex, sex, what people think of as sex, like mm-hmm. penetrative penis and vagina sex, that... That's what happens. You bleed. You pop your cherry. Yep. Blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and that cemented itself in many cultures and societies as evidence of virginity. And at this point, we're going to move into a discussion of virginity testing, which involves abusive practices towards women and discussions of abuse. So content warning here. Feel free to skip ahead um, till I talk about TI, <laughs> which you might not want to hear either. Um, so we spoke more broadly about practices to test virginity in the virginity episode, but not graphically describing virginity testing as it relates to the hymen. Mm -hmm. So... We'll, we'll talk about that now. One of the most common is the two-finger test, which is usually this or a variation of this is how people, quote-unquote, because it's not real, test their hymen. Um, and that's where a doctor or just any person who is deemed important enough to make judgments on a young person's virginity in that culture will insert their fingers into a person's vagina to open it and inspect for the laxity and openness of a person's hymen. Now, because of all the things we've already talked about, this is hugely problematic for a thousand reasons. Mm -hmm. And firstly, it won't tell you anything. <laughs> it won't tell you anything about the sexual history of the person who's being examined. Yeah. Sometimes you can't even, like, find it. Sometimes it's, like, too far back to see. Like, you, it's not something... It just it tells you nothing. We've already yeah. talked about all the reasons why. Yeah. It tells you it nothing. Is, it is not a medically sound It's not a medically like, sound evidence of any kind of contact yeah. or trauma to that area. So, and then secondly, this is a completely unnecessary procedure that involves someone sticking their hands into a usually very young person's genitals. And it can be extremely traumatic, especially because of the reason why they're doing it. Yeah. They're doing it to, you know, inspect this person for wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. And it can be this incredibly shameful, terrifying process where somebody is, you know, with or without your consent, you know, touching you yeah. inappropriately. And oftentimes these, these tests are done because older men want to marry younger girls and they're not going to marry them unless their hymen is deemed to be intact. Ugh. And like, what does intact mean? There's always, there's usually going to be a crescent-shaped, like, opening. Yeah. So then it's just up to whoever's looking at it to be like, that's too big, that's too small. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So unless you have, you know, like, an imperforate hymen, which is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna be, make, cause you medical problems. How would you know? Do you know what I mean? Every, every person's vagina and hymen is different. You wouldn't be able to know. And this, like, kind of social attitude of feeling like you need to have an intact, mm -hmm. no such thing, hymen, um, has led to some cultures suturing, basically stitching hymens closed. Which is bad. Yeah. And apart from being extremely painful is dangerous. Yeah. Very dangerous. Um, the flip side of this testing is proof of blood, which basically means that in some cultures, at some points in history and even today, women are expected to bleed after consummating a marriage. So it's like, oh, well, the way we'll know <laughs> is because, and I think we talked about this in the virginity episode. Yeah. We'll just see if you bleed. Mm -hmm. And that that will prove If there's that, blood on the sheets the next exactly. day. Um, now, let's let's hear it again. If we know from scientific studies that less, of ha that less than half of women actually bleed after penetrative intercourse, that puts a lot of them in some uncomfortable situations who, they, and that can even lead to, like, legal consequences. Yeah. Which is fucking crazy. 
And this is where that idea that we heard as a child of like popping your cherry comes from. Mm -hmm. That is like the anecdotal idea. Yeah. And, you know, non-vagina havers who just don't know anything (laughs) about, you know, the vagina or, Mm -hmm. or genitals that aren't there have no care to actually think about and learn about what is actually happening down there. And so it's like, oh, it just must be like a, I don't know, a grape. (laughs) You just burst open and then there's blood and you only do it once and then you have to take them in. Then you're broken. Yeah, exactly. Then you're dirty. Um, And so that never made any sense, like, to me because I was like, okay, is there something in me that's like about to burst any minute? What if I, like, sneeze the wrong way? And it just, and it's like, it makes sex seem painful and terrifying Mm -hmm. for young people and needn't be either of those things for anyone. You know what I mean? If you're having a good, positive, consensual interaction, you don't need to have pain or fear or, like, clenching up or any of that. No, don't clench. Doesn't need to. (laughs) And that's our other piece of advice. Yeah. We give really good advice. Let's get that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Just don't clench. Don't clench. Deep breaths, everyone. (laughs) Um, Another aspect of this is that in some countries, including in the United States, the hymen has been examined and used as evidence in cases of rape or sexual assault. And this is also a huge problem, whether it's done for, you know... With good intention or not. Yeah. Because, again, I'm just going to say it again. Like, you cannot look at a hymen and have any understanding of contact mm-hmm. from another object, person. It doesn't it doesn't tell you anything. And so it's been studied in conjunction with cases of child sexual abuse as well. But again, it just ends up being very inconclusive. You know, other than obviously violent trauma. Yeah. Which is a terrifying thing to think about, but... Other than that, like it would be on any other part of the body. Yeah. There's nothing it can tell you. Yeah. The hymen is not going to be the thing to tell you. Yeah. It's not, it's not something that concretely, can concretely say anything Mm -hmm. about that person's history. So that's all I'm going to say about, you know, abuse and things like that. Uh, And in October of 2018, only one year ago, uh, the UN Commission on Human Rights and UN Women partnered with the World Health Organization to declare that virginity testing constituted violence against women. Great. Why was it last year? Yeah, I feel like we should have noticed that a while ago. Uh, I don't know, like post Y2K or something (laughs) like that. Uh, Many individual countries had placed bans in the practice before that time, and many more did afterwards. Um, But it is still a pervasive practice in some countries, whether it's banned or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially where virginity is still heavily prized or involved in legal or cultural proceedings. Mm -hmm. So that kind of follows where virginity is still a hot button. Um, But I mean, virginity is a hot button everywhere because patriarchy is everywhere. What? So... Now we're going to talk about why we're discussing this this week. Why is it in the news? We're going to address the T.I. and the rum. <laughs> um, so last week, the Twitter sphere and Facebook lit up over an interview that T.I. did on Nazanin Mondi and Nadia Moham's podcast, Ladies Like Us. During the episode, T.I. said that he takes his teenage daughter to a gynecologist every year to, quote, get her hymen checked. And he's done this for years, even though no, even though she is now eighteen and in her first year of college. Ugh. 
and a ton of people and celebrities weighed in on how creepy and inappropriate this was. And the hosts of the podcasts recently apologized for airing the episode, took it down, and also addressed their kind of cavalier response to it. A, a bunch of people were like, why did these two women, Not you know, laugh and move on? They, I think they handled it very appropriately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't hold anything against them. I think yeah. they addressed kind of like that they were taken off guard and that it wasn't appropriate for them to respond that way. Mm -hmm. So... So they, they did the thing. T.I. Yeah. has yet to make a comment. Yep. As, as we have, are recording this episode, he has yet to make a comment. So there were a lot of different facets here. People pointed out what we discussed earlier a lot about the science and nonsense behind the hymen as a sign of virginity. But the more troubling thing to me is what we're going to talk about now, which is the aggressive policing of a young woman's sexuality. Yeah, what the fuck? So first of all, the fact that he would discuss his daughter's sex life or lack thereof in any way on a podcast <laughs> is deeply disturbing. Jesus, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, and what the shows, fuck? And shows that he has no respect for her privacy. Um, but the situation is extremely upsetting because he feels comfortable admitting that he mentally and physically polices and prevents his daughter from making her own choices about her body and sexuality. And now this is an extreme and possibly illegal case, given the fact that she's 18 at this point. Um, and I don't think you're allowed to do this. <laughs> However, the lack of trust and just like aggression showed to young women's sexuality in particular mm -hmm. is more than just this yeah. situation. And this is something that the two of us like talk about a lot. Like this super fucked up example doesn't exist in a vacuum. And this behavior is constantly happening to a lot of young people. Like how many times have you heard like a father talking about his daughter who's maybe like a baby or a toddler mm -hmm. and being like, she can't date until she's married. Yeah. Or like, you know, his her boyfriend better watch out or mm -hmm. like she's not leaving the house like in that, in these kinds of outfits. Like, yeah, that's a super commonplace thing. Yeah. And it's like so perverse and disturbing to yeah, me. Yeah, because it's such a weird level of like you're trying to own the sexuality of a different person, like be they who's your kid? Yeah, it's so who gave birth. Like, why are you? Why are you interested? Yeah, I get like protection, protectiveness, yes. but like it's so specifically about sexuality and her like genitalia. And I'm saying it, this is a dynamic that I often see amongst American fathers and daughters. Yes, <laughs> on Facebook posts and yes. things like that. So that's why I'm kind of. Discussing that dynamic there are in particular. Like, rules for dating my daughter. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, it's so true. Um, and, like, there's just this really pervasive, like, half-jokey, half-completely-serious social attitude around fathers and daughters that is so unhealthy. And what it really boils down to, to me, is that, number one, I don't trust my child. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm hearing yep. from these fathers who are doing this or mothers who are doing this. Number two, I don't think my child deserves bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they should be making decisions about their body and sexuality. Um, and number three, I want to have full control over my child's sexuality. Yeah. I desire to be completely in control of the sexual choices that my child is making. Um, and this is just creepy to me. And like, it's just like, you know, like, oh, I polish my guns when my daughter's dates come over. It's like, Fucking, you think that's cute? Like, yeah. do you think, think that's, like, I don't, charming? I don't, like, you're gonna shoot 14-year-old Ted who's coming to pick up your daughter? Yeah, to take her bowling or some yeah. shit? Like, it's just, it's so creepy and, like, borderline incestuous. Yeah. And gross. 
like for real, you're that obsessed with your daughter's vagina and sexuality. Like it's just ew. It's yeah. just an ew to me. Absolutely. Um, and I think the most important thing to consider is that like if you're the kind of parent who's constantly undermining your child's sexuality and their sense of autonomy, you're not only instilling in them a fear about their bodies and their sexuality, mm-hmm. like you're instilling a fear about that part of themselves, which is a totally natural thing. Um, but you're also telling them that you have no trust or faith in them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't trust you. And you probably, that's going to bleed over into every part of your relationship. Like, I feel like the best thing that my parents did for me was that they consistently told me when they thought I was doing something smart and when they thought I was doing something not so smart, but always were like, well, you're going to do what you're going to do. We think yeah. this is a smart choice and we think that's a not so smart choice, yeah. but you're going to make the choices that you make. And then in the end, like... <clears throat> Um, like, I realized that, like, they held my smart choices in high esteem, and that made me want to hold my own smart choice, like, myself in high esteem, and I wanted to make smarter choices, and I felt like if I made a mistake, I could go to my family and have support, you know, like, that's what's going to make you have good relationships with your kids and ma- and keep them from making dangerous or irresponsible choices in general, including sexual choices. Yep. Like, it's all connected. <laughs> like, you can't be, like, a loving, understanding, communicative parent about everything but sex. Like, you have to, you have to just be a trusting, you know, consistent mm-hmm. and engaged, but trusting and communicative parent yeah. to your kids. And, you know, that's the most effective guard, like... I, I get how scary it must be. Like, I'm not a parent. And I can understand, like, thinking, like, oh, my God, like, you know, I like I love my kid, but they make mistakes. And if they make a mistake with this, there's really heavy consequences. But, you know, I think the most effective way to guard against that is by establishing yourself as someone your kid can talk to and rely on no matter what. Yeah. And that way, they're, they're more likely to talk to you and feel like they don't have to go, I don't know, do something stupid. Yeah. To defy you. Yeah. Um, and especially when it comes to, like, the, this in specific, the best thing you can do is have open, honest communication and educate them about mm-hmm. what's going on. Give with, them a lot of understanding and knowledge yeah. in, in a way that's non judgmental. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, that's all I have to say about that. The problem is bigger than T.I. But also fuck T.I. But also fuck T.I. <laughs> um, and... I hope he comes, he hasn't said anything but, but yet, but I hope he comes out with a very thorough and research-based apology and yes. sets a good example for other people who might be engaging in this behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I feel really bad for his daughter who's been in the middle of this mm-hmm. more than anything. And I hope that positive discussions can come out of this. I hope that somebody maybe thinks about their own behavior and, mm-hmm. and it mirrors this and they're like, hey, maybe I should reevaluate yeah. the way I talk to my kids, the way I talk to women vagina havers my daughter my son etc yeah. etc um so yeah that's your hymen in a nutshell this has been a hymen hour Ooh. um hymen hour sounds like a dog like a <laughs> weimaraner <laughs> um but yeah i think we've knocked about as much virginity talk as we can out of this podcast, but I'm sure we'll find another. I was way. gonna say that feels like a challenge. I'm sure we'll I'll be back next I week watched, with more hot. I watched a news. documentary about purity balls, 
Like oh yes, like the, like the yeah. I think you might have touched on it. Yes, I did. You yes, did I talk did. about it for a second. I was imagining like a, like a bouncy ball that you get when you promise to not have sex, and I was like, that's so easy to lose. Just sounds like our new merch. <laughs> <laughs> would love one. If I could, I would give anything to find the credit card that I signed about keeping my purity. It's like I was in CCD, which was my religious class, nice. and we went to a purity talk. I think I mentioned this. Yes. Like they made us all sign like a card, and they're like, "This is your virginity or your purity agreement." Yeah. God, what I wouldn't do to find that now! Oh my god! <laughs> Just put it in a tiny frame in my apartment where I live in sin. Um, thank you guys so much. This was fun. This I mean, was a, my part wasn't, but yours was. That was a dif- difficult, but you know. The fun aunt, Allie, is here to make things Amen. fun. Do watch the documentary on PBS, though, you guys. Oh, it's, it's excellent. really good. It's, if you're looking for an engrossing doc, please find that. We might watch it after this. I gotta be honest. Yeah. Um, please um, give us a like on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Give us a comment on your podcaster. Yeah, if you, can re- if you can review us, that would be lit as hell. Yeah, it really helps us. really helps us get our message out. And our message is... Don't buy guns. And don't, but dear God, don't clench. And don't, don't fucking clench. (laughs) Deep breaths. Deep breaths. So work on that. And until next week, we still hope you stay horrified. Stay horrified.